I love team sports. I like individual sports, um, but I, I, I love team sports uh, because you're personally engaged, you're personally committed, you're personally alert the whole time, uh, but you're part of a larger group. And, and the older I get, the more I'm convinced the Christian faith is a team sport, not an individual sport. Uh, individual sport, if someone's yelling at you, it's at you. If you watch NBA or college ball, uh, basketball, when the whistle blows, you know, people are kind of milling about, the, play, the, the game's been stopped, but then they shout out the number of who committed the foul. And sometimes you see the shock and horror on the face of the player that got called out for the foul because they did not think that it was them. But you don't know if it's personal until you hear your number called. In an individual sport, if anyone's yelling at you, it's because it's you. There's, there's nobody else. So I love playing tennis, uh, but uh, I, it's, it's an individual game. But I miss team sports, uh, where a, a team is, is a team. And so you may not catch the last out of the game, but it's your team. I can remember when I played baseball, those chances when the bases are loaded and you're coming up. For me, it wasn't about whether or not I could hit a grand slam. It was about, I just don't want to let down the team that where I've got members of my team on first, second, and third base. And if I strike out or fly out or ground out, I'm going to be disappointing them. It's the, the glory of the grand slam is is an after effect, but in the moment, it's all about the team. Can I advance our team around the bases and get home? The challenge, I think, for us continues to be, uh, as Christians in the West, is, is that we have made the Christian life an individual sport rather than a team sport. And when I read Paul's letters, I, I increasingly find myself going, how, how did we land here? How, how did we get here? How could we see the Christian life as a room of individuals rather than as a, a gathered community attempting to do a life together that could have a redemptive capacity to bring and include others into the life of Christ that we've been given? And this passage that we're looking at this morning I have to tell you, I, I've kind of gotten lost in it. It's full of quaint verses that we so easily, if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for any time, you've come across these passages, and they're, they're on your calendars, they're at the bottom of journal pages. The, these are the warm, fuzzy quotes, largely, uh, of the Christian life, and yet I'm convinced this morning, as we look at it, uh, while they are assurances, they, they arise out of a really difficult and, and challenging situation. And so uh, if you have a Bible with you on your phone, in your pocket, wherever, um, let me invite you to um, open up to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to go back and begin in verse 1 where Pastor Vince was last week, and we're going to read through verse 9 this morning. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and Syn Syn 
I, I can never read it in English, and I can't read it in Greek. Um, Sintuke, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to the Lord. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell or think on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, literally do these things, and the peace of God will be with you. So, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be our pastor this morning. Lord, as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit would lead us in all truth, would counsel, convict us. And so we pray in Jesus' name that this morning, uh, these would not be my words, Lord, but, but God, that you would provoke a living word within us that we can be pastored by this morning. we open our minds, our hearts, our ears, our wills to you. So speak to us together as a community in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these verses, there are eight concluding charges that Paul makes. They're all commands. They're not suggestions, they're not invitations, they're commands in the Greek, it's, they're all imperatives, it's command language. And sometimes it can get hidden a little bit in our translations, but, but, but these are commands and there's eight of them. And I'd like to go through them with you very quickly. These eight concluding, concluding charges in verse one, stand firm in the Lord. In verses two and three, he says, help. Euodia and Sintuke to be united together. And, and that word for um, help is a command. Stand in the joy, rejoice. Stand firm in joy, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's not, let me suggest that you think happy things. Let me suggest that you be happy. Let me suggest that during troubling times you find a way to rejoice. It's, it's command language. Verse 5, stand in compassion, let your kindness, a lot of our translations say let, and in the way we think in our Western use of our language, English, let is kind of a permission giving. Uh, this is a command. In other words, do compassion, stand firm in compassion. Verse 6, stand in assurance, do not be anxious. Again, it's not like, you know, there's ways that you can minimize your anxiety. You know, there's... There's, there's ways to, it, it's a command, do not be anxious, but we'll come back and visit that in a minute. In fact, let me just say right now, they, they, 
there's an anxiety here that he's talking about, and there's an anxiety here that he's not talking about. Okay. Uh, earlier in chapter 2, he, he talks about his anxiety almost unto death uh, when Onesimus is sick and ill. You can quote this verse all you want. If, if there's a loved one uh, that's going through difficult times, you can have anxiety. It's okay. You have permission to be anxious. And God can give you peace amidst that anxiety, but that concern, that alarm, uh, doesn't go away. In fact, you can have peace for yourself in the most difficult of times, but if there's a loved one who's going through it, you have worry, you have concern, you have alarm. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians about being depressed unto death. Depressed people are anxiety-ridden people. Depressed people aren't people who, who have peace, but I'm just depressed unto death. D depressed people have anxiety. So, so Jesus might have even had anxiety on the night that he was crucified when he's sweating drops that are falling like blood. And he's saying, could, could none of you kind of stay awake with me? What, why would Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed in the garden, praying, have a need for others to be with him, to share that time, to be awake with him? So there, there is an anxiety that, that grows out of our alarm and our care for those that we love. And I don't think that's being addressed here. What's, what's being addressed here and is, okay, hold that thought. We'll come back to it. <laughs> so, so stand in assurance. Don't be anxious. Okay. Verse 6, stand firm in prayer. Verse 8, stand firm in your focus, whatever is good, noble thing. Think, dwell, reflect on these things. Again, not a suggestion, a command. And then finally, stand firm in your devotion. Do the things, he's telling the Philippians, do the things, do the life, just do it that you've seen me do and follow and, and believe. Okay, so eight concluding charges. And as I was reading them uh, this week, I found myself asking this question. How does Paul get here? Do you, I happen to like those kinds of movies or TV shows that shows something, you know, epic at the very beginning. And sometimes it's like a character that you've been watching, and now they're lying dead and bleeding, it appears. And you're going, wait, that's a lead. That's a lead character. And then, it's, and then it freezes, and it says, 10 days earlier. And then you're kind of going backwards to kind of find out how we got to this moment. Uh, I, I like that kind of um, tool for, for storytelling. And so as I was reading these eight concluding charges that Paul gives to the Philippian church, to the church as a whole, I found myself thinking, how did we get here? That these are the eight final things that he chooses to, to, to command them. I mean, it's not just like in conclusion, some summary thoughts for, for you, dear church. It's like, in conclusion, eight must-dos. Non-optional. These are eight things that are to mark this community. And so the first thing is, by way of context, is that there's 
kind of a sociological context for what's going on. All throughout the letter, he's been alluding to this incipient division that's being caused, created in the church. And now in verse four, uh, verse two of chapter four, he calls it out. I don't know what it, what it would be like for you, but all I could do was imagine trying to you know, project myself to being these two women and listening to the letter and nodding my head because how easy is it for us to have kind of cognitive dissonance that can hear words and kind of think, well, that doesn't apply to me, right? Um, and so you kind of sit through patiently and, and you listen and you go, you know, I'm thinking to myself, if I'm one of those two women, I'm thinking, these are such good words, Paul. I mean, this is what we need to hear. You know, this, you know stay together, stay on point. And, and then you, you're listening to this letter being read publicly. And then all of a sudden, in conclusion, I urge Euodia and Suntuke to be reconciled. And, and notice here, as, as Vince pointed out last week, he's not taking sides. That's the first thing that's clear. He's not taking sides. And the other thing is he's not positioning one above the other. In fact, you know, it's also a great case for women in leadership, by the way. I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So this is not a theological issue. It is not a theological issue. They've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So this is not a theological issue. This is a relational issue. The church is dividing over personal polarization, and we don't know what they were hacked off at each other for, but there was this internal threat that had nothing to do with Jesus. Okay, let's, let's think about that for a second. An internal threat, a relational threat, that had nothing to do with Jesus. And that's part of the problem. It had nothing to do with Jesus. Then secondly, throughout the letter, Paul has been writing them to stand firm, to hold on to the gospel, to stand firm, because there's these external pressures coming from without. That the Philippian community, the city of Philippi, was not warm in their reception of followers of Jesus Christ. There's this external cultural pressure being brought to bear. And it's isolating that community because they don't share the same view of the world, the same view of God that the community around them share. Their sense of personal morality, personal integrity was out of step with the world around them. And rather than capitulate or give in, he's urging them, he's commanding them to stand firm. So relational division from within and external pressure from without. I, I, I don't have to use my imagination much 
to find that that's pretty relevant to what I see today. Churches, as, as someone who helps oversee what's now 442 churches uh, in California, Nevada, Utah, and Arizona, I, I have a front row seat to churches dividing over nothing to do with Jesus. It's happening. These words aren't theoretical words. They're not isolated circumstances. We are fracturing for reasons that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And therein lies the problem. It has nothing to do with Jesus. Something else is exercising more authority in splitting us apart than the authority of Jesus Christ to keep us united. We're listening to other voices. And Paul's saying, keep it together. Then, then there's the external pressures. Living in a time of external pressures that would cause us to give up, capitulate, to compromise, either in what we believe or having our behavior be disconnected from what we believe. And so he says, stand firm in the gospel, but he also tells us to stand firm in our behavior. And the behavior, he's saying, stand firm in your gentleness. Uh, the word in the Greek carries the idea of gentleness, of kindness, of compassion, that in the world, the world's response to pressure, to confrontation, is retaliation. And he's saying that's not going to be your way. And so, again, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. You don't behave this way. You will behave this way. With gentleness, compassion, kindness, forbearance. And that command is, we receive it personally, but it's spoken over us as a community. So there's the sociological context, this internal strife and external pressure. But behind Paul's words, back in June when I preached, I shared three movie clips because of, to illustrate imagination and how things we carry in our mind influence how we see and what we value and things. And, and so, in this short passage, we see that Paul has a theological framework. And I just want to tell you, there's no such thing as irrelevant theology. There's, there is such a thing as bad theology. And all of us are theologians. Your life, your choices, your behaviors are a reflection of your theology. So the question is, do we want to be good theologians or do we want to be, I know the word I want to use, but then Carol's going to get mad at me. So, um, so, so 
So, so or, or, or do we want to be crummy theologians? Okay. Do, do we want to be good theologians or do we want to be crummy theologians? Because you cannot divorce spirituality. That's a word that we like to use. What's our spirituality? What's the hallmarks of our spirituality? You can't divorce spirituality from theology. You can't. And in this passage, we see that it, what Paul is commanding us, urging us, concluding, grows out of his theology. Really quickly, he uses the word Lord 15 times in this letter. I think the lordship of Jesus is a, is a pretty big concept. The uniqueness, supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is Lord over all, as A.W. Tozier was fond of saying, he is either Lord over all, Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. Okay, so, so it's not Jesus first and this second and this third, it's Jesus only. Okay, there's, there's no ranking under Jesus. It's just Jesus, the Lordship of Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ, Paul confesses the Lordship of Christ, which means he's unique and supreme. No one close. Okay. Okay, so he, he talks about the Lordship of Christ 15 times. Okay. Great passage in Philippians 2, right? Uh, where he talks about he did not count his equality with God. So lordship, equal with God. Is there any equals to God? No. Okay, so Jesus Christ does not count his equality with God as something to be grasped, held on to. He emptied himself. But he concludes it by saying, and at one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay. So lordship of Christ, big thing. And he talks about it in terms of the return of Christ. Sometimes we get mocked as believers because we believe that Jesus Christ will be coming again. We don't know when, but it's not a question of if. Okay. And don't let anyone mock you for believing in, in that blessed hope. Okay. And so Paul, in fact, he ties the inspiration of, of our decision-making to our awareness of the Lord's return. And then he talks in terms of the reign of Christ, the rule of Christ. And so the Lordship of Christ, big thing. Secondly, he talks about the gospel eight times in the, in the letter of Philippians. So Paul's theology of the gospel, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, but God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteous ones of God, the righteousness of God. Paul's passionate about this gospel that has gathered this community in Philippi, and he is convicted of their missional call to extend that gospel in the city, regardless of the pressure, and therefore stand firm, don't compromise, don't capitulate, but don't give in to intolerance and, and retaliation. It's not an option for us. Then he, he talks about God 24 times in this letter. And, and wrapped up in that discussion of God is God's ultimate authority and God's ultimate sovereignty, that God's in control. And because of that, 
This all leads to his discussion of joy, rejoicing, rejoice. And so 14 times in his letter, that's why some people call Philippians the journey into joy uh, because it's unique among all of Paul's letters because this theme of joy, rejoicing, and thanksgiving, they all come from the same Greek uh, root, are, are so prevalent. And so this theology, this theological framework that Paul has is what's driving these practical commands and exhortations. Because Jesus is Lord, because God is sovereign. Okay, what, so here's this church that has this threat from within of dividing. Division amongst Christians is a cancer. Don't, don't ever make your peace with it. Jesus says, by your love for one another, the world will come to know me. So if I want to undermine that missional expression, I'm going to divide Christians. If I'm the devil, that's my plan. I don't, I don't need anything else to do but to come up with human reasons for, for relationships to divide and self-destruct. To come up with other reasons. And so Paul commands them to be united, and the incentive for that isn't to have some warm, warm, fuzzy, cozy experience of, aren't relationships wonderful? It's because of the Lord, the Lordship of Jesus. Why, why be united? Because you belong to him. The incentive for living the way we do deals with the lordship of God. Why should we, why can we abandon anxiety? The anxiety that he's talking about here, returning to that, hold your thought, is this external pressure. Be, don't be anxious about nothing, but through everything, through prayer and supplication, and the peace of God will encompass you. Why? Because what's at stake here is our anxiety that the world is out of control. It's falling apart. It's spiraling out of control. We have no sense of personal control in our lives anymore. Our streets are, are ablaze with hatred and division. And, and now we have, you know, pandemic, the sequel maybe or something. You know, is it, you know all, all this stuff is going on. And are we going to be isolated? And, 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 and this whole thing, you know, it, it just is anyone in control. Don't be anxious because in prayer and supplication and rejoicing, you reconnect yourself with the one who's sovereign. And the whole thing, if you haven't caught it yet in scripture, let me say, we are co-workers with Christ. The community of God, the church, we are co-workers in Christ in his missional endeavors for redemption and rescue. But nowhere in the Bible are we ever co-workers with God in the exercise of his sovereignty. Okay. God's sovereignty is inscrutable. 
You can speculate all you want, but ultimately it's inscrutable. I think I've shared this before, but you know, when COVID hit, I, I heard a lot of pastors say, you know, God didn't cause COVID, but he can use it. I'm just gonna speak for myself. That sounds pretty much like a powerless God to me. Okay. But we've gotten so afraid to have a God that's big and, and who exercise sovereign rule and judgment that when things go wrong, we just say, well, God, God didn't cause that, but he can use it. And believe me, I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens to us, God caused. Okay. But in the Bible, it's pretty clear when things happen on a global scale, it didn't just happen. Okay. In two weeks, God brought every nation on the planet, Western and Eastern, North of the equator, South of the equator, developed nations, developing nations, and underdeveloped nations. He brought our world to a standstill without a shot being fired. I don't think it just happened. I, I, I don't think it just happened. I'm sorry, I don't think it just happened. I don't think it just happened any more than when God judged Israel and destroyed Jerusalem and had it overrun by Babylonians, that it just happened. And then we rewrote history, saying, well, because that happened, we must have done something wrong. Our, we did something wrong. That must have been, you know. I, I don't think it just happened. I think God is in control. And within that context, I can have personal concern, alarm, anxiety for people that I care for and love who are in harm's way, who are suffering because of this virus, families who are mourning because of this virus. But I can honestly say I have no anxiety about that there's been a loss of control, that God is not on his throne securely and that he is working all things towards himself. I don't have any doubt about that. I have no anxiety about that. Within the individual personal circumstances, yeah, I have alarm, concern, worry for people I love and care about. But, but the God that I believe has revealed himself in scripture The God who does exercise judgment when in his sovereign understanding it needs to be exercised. I'm not called to be judged. We're, that's what I'm saying. We're not, we don't say you get in, you don't get in, because that's to be a co-worker with God in his sovereign rule and judgment. We're not called to be that. We are called to be co-laborers with Jesus Christ, extending his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and therefore operating, expressing compassion, kindness, gentleness, love, and being that missional community that brings and draws all manner of people to himself. We are co-laborers with God, but the sovereign thing, it's above our pay grade. It's above Jesus's pay grade. He said, don't ask me about when I'm coming back or when the day of the Lord is going to be. I haven't even been told that. 
So stuff like this on this kind of scale, it's above our pay grade. But it's possible to live during these times without anxiety that it's all out of control. Because God is in control. I'm absolutely convinced God is in control. And in my more jaundiced moments, it's like, it's amazing that he let us go on this long as a planet without intervening, without judging. I mean, that's just my mind. That's just my perspective. But your theology drives your behavior. Your theology is going to influence your emotions. Your theology is going to inspire and shape how you view other people. It's, it's all based on your theology. If you don't think God's, God has the power to do it, then you're going to look to people to have the power to do it. you're not convinced that God has redemptive purposes then you're not going to look for them if you aren't convinced that God is a God of grace and mercy then you're not going to regard and treat other people with grace and mercy I wrote this down earlier in the week. It is easy for me to see this passage as merely ordinary advice. But I'm growing to see that it is anything but. I'm seeing a strong theology here that undergirds this passage because theology, what we believe, inspires and forms and defines the choices we make. This is why I think a shallow understanding of God will lead to a shallow relationship, which in turn leads to a shallow and careless Christian life. Any faith that lacks confidence in God's power and rule means that we will put strong faith in human power. Shallow faith in God means we'll opt for a short-term gain rather than a long-term victory. A focus on truth will generally contend to be right and can't be wrong, because it requires far less trust, patience, and faith than grace. Grace can look at truth and say, Father, forgive them, but truth can never arrive at grace. It can only stand in judgment of error. Grace takes a revelation. Truth only requires reality. Your theology is going to shape your behavior. It shapes everything. And so returning to this passage, that's why Paul can write these eight commands with authority, with a sense of inspiration, with a, with a sense of being in command, because it's his theology that's causing him to arrive at this point. And so he can say, be anxious about nothing. Because God's in control. 
He can say, stand firm in the gospel, because if we don't, there's no other gospel, right? He, he says another level, if anyone comes telling you another gospel. He says, be united in Christ because of the Lord. His, his theology of the Lordship of Christ doesn't permit the division and polarization. Your theology, or bluntly lack of, is going to hamstring your faith, and it will certainly compromise your devotion. And so next week, we're, we're going to see how Paul talks about our understanding. But I'll, I'll just say this, because sometimes theology gets a bad rap. It focuses on the non-essentials. It's, it's irrelevant. It's impractical. I don't want to spend the rest of my life reading books. I'm not talking about that kind of theology. Paul's theology, his understanding, a theological understanding, is a mind, heart, and will that has been catalyzed with a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And, and therefore, because my mind, my heart, and my will has, has encountered Christ and has been catalyzed with Christ, it means I want to get to know him as much as I can. Understand, anticipate, learn, grow. It, it's about love. It's ultimately about love. It's ultimately about relationships. When I met Carol, I encountered someone who catalyzed my mind, my heart, and will, and I wanted to get to know her. Now, we didn't have texts and tweets and things. We had to write letters. In the, and so when she would write a letter, I would devour that letter and and I would read it and I would reread it and I would kind of read between the lines and try and pick up things because I was intent on learning Carol. And then as you you learn one another, you begin to to let that knowledge and understanding inspire inspire and inform your behavior, your choices. Theology, good theology, is this simply the written reflection of women and men across the centuries whose mind, heart, and will have been catalyzed by this personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And what they've learned is given to us as a gift to learn and grow. So one, we don't repeat their mistakes, but we can learn and grow from them. And that's why it's so important in our unity and the quality of our community together depends on it. Hallelujah. Amen.